we have started a new series as of a couple of weeks ago called Holy Following Christ. Dan did it a couple of weeks ago and he taught from John 10, where Jesus said, I came that they could have, and then he said these two Greek words, paresis zoe, meaning abundant life. So Jesus said, I came that they could have abundant life. Another translation is a rich and satisfied life. Or my favourite one is a more and better life than they ever dreamed of. Good old message. And we're excited about it. It's going to be a bit of a longer series than what we're used to. We're going to go into Advent. But a little bit more time is going to allow us to have time to learn it and practice the six areas, the six facets of holy following Jesus. So if we go through these just very quickly, the six areas. So we've got the spirit-empowered life, dependent on the spirit. We've got the word-anchored life. We've got the compassionate life, having compassion in every sphere of our life. Got the consecrated life. This is our character formation, development of habit to respond to life with integrity. The incarnational life, seeing our faith in our everyday life and our matter and our things and our prayer-filled life. So often if we have a look at these, we may be more comfortable sitting in one or two areas, and that is normal, that's absolutely fine. But if we can see the other sides of the facets, if we can experience it, we'll find out that each of these has a fruitfulness and a beauty of what each of them can bring to our faith. And it results in a holistic way of following Jesus. Hence, holistically following Jesus. And holistic, what I mean is that we bring each segment together harmoniously, bringing together goodness. So the aim of this series isn't for us to nail and be an expert on every single facet. It is to enlarge our vision of what our life can look like with God as we're trying to step into becoming more like Jesus in our everyday life. Sounds good? So just to let you know, these six facets that we're talking about, um, we haven't made it out of thin air. We haven't thought, what are some good six things about following Jesus? Uh, They have been found in the life and the way of Jesus. So to find out the way in the life of Jesus, we need to follow him. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, If we can etu, we're going to just do the quick Bible reading from Mark. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. This is the word of the Lord. Have a seat. Now, Jesus often used this phrase, come follow me, follow me. He said it to his disciples and he said it to this crowd and he says it to us today, continually inviting us to follow him. But what does it actually mean to follow Jesus? Back when I was about 12 years old, I used to wear one of these bracelets. Don't laugh. 
There's no shame in that. Do, so we remember this? We may still wear them. That's great. Yeah. What would Jesus do? So I and a handful of well-meaning young Christians used to wear them, um, either jewellery and bracelet necklace form. One is a form of evangelism, right, to show that I'm a committed Christian without having to say it. Um, and also as a reminder for myself, when I'm in tricky situations, to think about, okay, now what would Jesus do, rather than what I typically would want to do. For example, what would Jesus do when I'm driving to church and a car cuts into me, in front of me? Likely, Jesus would not toot the horn, go right up at the back of them, so they know not to mess with me. And then I do this awesome thing that I know messes with their heads. I give them this deathly leash stare. Like, they don't see it, they don't care, I know. But I, like, I give it to them, like, don't mess with me. Likely, Jesus wouldn't do that. Asking the, what would Jesus do? Looking at my bracelet and looking at that scenario. It's not a bad idea. It's a great gesture, it's a great question but it's an insufficient way of following in the likeness of Jesus. The problem with this is that it's reactive. We're trying to change the end result. We're trying to change my behavior in a certain way for me not to give that deathly stare to that um, driver. But all I'm doing is I'm modifying my behavior. I haven't touched what's going on as to the lead up of it. It hasn't addressed my behaviour whatsoever about the fact that probably my life is going at ultra speed. I'm so fast in what my life is doing that I have limited margins, and so when anything inconveniences me, I'm irritated. It doesn't address my reaction to when someone, when I feel perceived harm, they haven't harmed me, right, but I perceive that it's harm, and I feel powerless, so my reaction, instead of my desire to see the humanity in that driver, uh, my desire is for a little bit of justice. Uh, let's be honest, a little bit of revenge sometimes with my stare. When we're in the moment, when we're questioning what would Jesus do in this scenario, it's really too late. A better question for us to ask if we want to follow Jesus is how would I live my life if Jesus were living it? How would Jesus be as a mum to my two girls? How would Jesus be living as a graphic designer, as a teacher, as a teenager, as a person in your family member? Dallas Willard said this, discipleship is the process of becoming who Jesus would be if he were you. Being a disciple, or another word for it is apprentice, it's simply someone who's decided to be with and learn from a teacher who knows more than you, to become what that person is. Peter, James and John, the disciples, they knew what it meant when Jesus asked them to be disciples. In those times when a rabbi had disciples, the expectation and, and the honour was that they were to stop what they were doing. They were to lay down all the beliefs that they had and the way of doing life. And they were to arrange their entire lives around this rabbi, around a teacher. What he teaches and how to live. 
to be formed by their rabbi. We have discussed this here before, here at CV, but all of us here are being and have been spiritually formed. Up to today, you have formed beliefs about what is good and bad. You have formed beliefs on who is good, what success looks like, fundamental philosophical questions and just basic questions about how we do life. And we have learned these ways of beliefs and desires from someone. Usually, we are shaped by the significant people in our lives like our parents and our teachers or coaches, as well as our friends, and as well as our environment, and as well as our culture. Whether we're aware of it or not, whether we're being intentional about it or not, all of us, all of us are apprentices of someone. The big question is then who do we choose to follow? The wisest answer surely would be the, the best teacher, right? So following Jesus today, being his apprentice, is more than just us reading the Bible occasionally. It's more than just avoiding things that aren't Christ-like. To follow and become Jesus' disciples is to be with our rabbi, to listen and to observe and to imitate him, to become formed into his beliefs and way of living. It's to rearrange our way of life, our beliefs and our way of doing things so that eventually it becomes natural to us and we slowly start to live out the life of Precious Zoe, the abundant life. The 20th century writer, A.W. Tozer, said this. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. It's a massive claim, eh? Let's read it again. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Really? What about how we treat each other? What about how I live my life? Or what about my family? That's a big statement. But one I believe actually to be fundamentally true. Because our view of God will directly affect how we view ourselves. It will directly affect how we view and treat others. And it will directly influence how we live out our lives. Our thoughts on who the nature of God is will affect every aspect of our lives. So, how do we check in? How do we evaluate what we are thinking about when we think about God? Now let's start by asking ourselves this question. Who is God to you? When you think about the Father... How does he look at you? What's the picture of God like for you? What's the character of God? What's the nature of God? Who is God to you? Now, each and every single one of us has a picture of God. It's often dependent on our culture and our past teachings about God 
and about our experience, which have shaped our view of God. I bet if I asked you this question, if you were right here in front of me and I asked you this question, you would give me a great theological answer. You would. You'd be able to say like, God is love and good and gracious and kind and merciful. And I'll be like, good for you. It's awesome. I'm glad. Well done. Tick. It's good. But what do you truly believe and live out about God? If I really thought about who the Father was in the Trinity for me in the past, um, I probably would have said that I believed that God loved me and that God is love. But if I was to be honest and really think about it, I think that I would picture God as a little bit unemotional and more authoritative than Jesus. He was the one probably that was handing down the rules, you know, the kind of the bad cop of the parent. And when I did something wrong, I kind of imagined that Jesus was in the middle of me and God, trying to appease God, because Jesus was more the relational and compassionate one. That was my view, probably, if I was to be honest, in the past. A study conducted at Baylor University concluded that approximately 38% of Christians, 38%, they viewed God as an angry judge, watching us closely, poised and eager to move on us if we fail. 38%. That's um, Christians over all denominations of churches. Perhaps you're not that extreme. Maybe you say, oh, I don't feel like that. that's quite me, but if I think about it, maybe I feel that God's not really, not really for me. Or if I'm honest, maybe some of us may think that God is just generally disappointed in us most of the time. Or maybe you feel like he's an absent father, not really present with us in our daily life. Often what we do is we project on God our experience of, of people of authority in our life. So if we had, say, like a critical parent or a critical coach, what we often do somehow is we project that and give that attribute to God. Maybe for you, God is like an awesome genie. He is there for you when you need your wishes granted. Or perhaps for you, there's this uncanny similarity between you and God, because you and God are on the same page with everything. It's amazing. Like, God likes all the things that you do and dislikes all the same people as you. Every decision that you make, God's like, yeah, got it, on it. It's just amazing. It's uncanny, the similarity between you and God. Often our narrative of who God is is largely unchallenged. We don't challenge it much. Yet it determines much of our behaviour, regardless whether it's helpful or whether it's accurate. Therefore, these narratives of God are running and sometimes ruining our lives. James Brian Smith. There he is. Good guy. I don't know him. Seems like a good guy. Um, what I say, personally, um, he calls him actually this. He calls himself the Forrest Gump of, of I don't know, Christian circles because he he finds himself normal and simple. But he has met and been mentored by these amazing theological greats like Dallas Willard, Richard Foster, Henry Nouwen, all these amazing people. And he was a teaching assistant for Dallas Willard. 
and he um, wrote those two books. Now, before he wrote those books with Dallas, he decided to make a curriculum for becoming more Christ-like. And he had this curriculum, it was awesome, he's really happy with it, and before he gives it out to people, he decides, okay, I'm going to field test it for four years. So 25 people on a 32-week course, who would do that here? 32-week course. And for four years, each people would come in and do it. Amazing. What he found out, though, what was the most shocking thing for him to learn for this field testing over four years was this. He said, if you just teach people the practices and their God views are inaccurate, they won't become more Christ-like, they'll actually become worse. Because, for example, they'll be using the practices to get the angry God that they believe a little less angry or a little less disappointed. They'll be thinking, maybe if I just do more service, I'll pray more, I'll do these soul training exercises, as James said, God will look at me differently. James found that the inaccurate views and narratives of God were actually becoming toxic for following Jesus. So before he sent out the curriculum, what he did is he decided to make a whole book on the narratives of God and to challenge it. And that is the first one, the good and beautiful God. The other point to make is that we become who we worship. So suppose we believe that God is a judgmental God. God is a mad God at us who particularly is mad at certain types of sinful behaviour. We too will gradually become judgmental people, focused and angry at those particular sinful behaviours. Or if we view God as just so accepting and unwavering of all the decisions that we've made, we view God as like a teddy bear or an ambivalent hippie or unaware of life around them, um, this too will be our reaction to the decisions that we make in life and how we interact with God. It is so vital to uncover the differences between our professed ways of images of God, what we say we think we believe about God, and our default pictures of God, the ideas we hold deep down. Perhaps we're unaware, but that profoundly shapes us. So who is God? Scripture tells us this, John 4, 16, God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. God is love. Brad Juzak said this awesome quote. God is love plus nothing. Plus nothing. Now, a lot of us can say, God is love. I get that. I, I get his love, but he's also just. He's also wrathful and holy and righteous. But love defines these attributes. They are not separate from his love. God is love. So everything that God does is an overflow of who he is. So can I take just, the, just a little side sermon here, over here, and just talk about wrath for a moment? So we hear like God is wrathful and stuff like that. God has wrath. 
which is a temporary thing towards sin, it is not an irrational rage against us. It isn't even anger, which is a human emotion. Wrath is a rational response to being fiercely and consistently opposed to sin and evil because sin and evil destroys us. Having a teddy bear type of God seems really inviting at first, but a God that is ambivalent about sin and evil isn't good news. When we look at the darkness of this world, we want a God who is against that and desires the best for us. The wrath isn't against us. Wrath is even God's wrath is an overflow of who God is. God is love. Next truthful statement about God. God is revealed in Jesus. And when the disciples asked Jesus, so um, when are you going to show us the Father? If I was Jesus, I'd just imagine Jesus kind of being like exasperated, being like, ugh. And then John 14, 9, he goes, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. God probably doesn't do that. He's much more gracious than I am. So he says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Colossians 1.15 clarified as well, the Son is the image of the invisible God. Later on in Colossians 2.9 says, for in Christ lives all the fullness of God, all the fullness in a human body. In Hebrews 1.3, the Son perfectly mirrors God and is stamped with God's nature. The Son perfectly mirrors God and is stamped with God's nature. Jesus is not a minor representation of God. It's not like when the manager's assistant comes to work and the assistant's trying to be the manager, but everyone knows he's not the manager because the manager has more authority and presence and power. That's not what is happening here. To see God's true image, we look at Jesus. How he loved people. How he lived his life. Jesus is the image of God. And this is great news Because the Bible shows that Jesus is brimming with goodness and power and love and beauty and joy. I love Dallas Willard's comment about like God is the most joyous being in the universe. So true. We we look at how he treated those that were abused. We look at how Jesus treated those who were excluded and on the margins. We look at how he confronted the religious abusers. But the clearest image of God comes in the form of Jesus on the cross, crucified. I stole this from Brad Jusic because it's so good. The cross shows that Jesus, so therefore God, is self-giving. Jesus pours himself to the world, gives the whole self. He pursues us. He's like the father that runs to the prodigal son, takes a step, he's there. He gives him whole self. Jesus is radically forgiving. 
when he was on the cross. And people were putting him to death in the most embarrassing and the most excruciating death. And he's there and he says, I forgive them. The people that are crucifying him for the whole world, for us, he radically forgives us. And he's co-suffering. He willingly experienced the depths of the human condition, including suffering. He knows our pain. He is wildly compassionate for us. One of the ways we can check to see if our picture of God is healthy is to ask this. Is there anything I believe about God's character that conflicts with the character of Jesus? Is there anything that I'm holding on to about God which doesn't match the life and the nature of Jesus? If, this is, if there is, you can challenge it and let it go. So if I can change the quote from Toza slightly, I'm sure he won't mind, and then ask you guys this. What comes into our minds when we think about Jesus is the most important thing about us. How does Jesus look at us? John 15 says this, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. God doesn't look at us like we are a disaster that he needs to tolerate. That if we have to change, we have to change in order to make him less disappointed at us. That he goes, oh, okay, I agree to forgive you. God is seen through Jesus, has always loved us, has always been for us, and desires always to be with us. We are God's friends, his beloved ones. He continually invites us to follow him, not for us to back up and get in line and to make that disappointed God a little bit less disappointed, but he's asking us to follow him, to taste what is good, to spend time with the God that calls you beloved, his friends, And to accept the invitation to follow God is to turn and move towards his love. Just turn, move towards his love. Or like they say in the recovery step program, step three says this. We made a decision to turn our lives and will over to the care, not the control, the care, of a loving God. I'll tell you a quick story. Um, There was a guy called Robert Cornwall. He was a pastor in the 1960s in a small church in Oregon, in America. And he had a bit of spare time, um, as pastors do, and we um, went to the local hospital and said, look, I've got an hour to give you for a week. Just give me whatever you got. Um, you know, I can counsel, I can pastor. What have you got for me? 
And the guards thought about it and they thought, okay, what can we give this guy? Um, and he said, okay, yep, come with me. So they walked down these corridors. Lo and behold, to Robert Cornwall, is that they're leading to Building 37. And in Building 37, housed the most mentally unwell patients there. And back in 1960s, a very different way of treating to how we would do it today. They didn't know probably how to do it, so they were dosed up with a lot of medication. The guard opened the locks, brought Robert Cornwall into the room, and there he saw 37 people groaning and unresponsive. There was excrement all over the wall and they were half-clothed. The guy goes, cool, see you later, thank you so much for looking after them for an hour. See you later, I'll come back in an hour. Locked the doors and Robert Cornwall just tried to talk to them and they were just unresponsive. So he decided to sit in the middle of the room where there was no excrement. And he sat down and he's just like, God, what do I do? And he felt the Holy Spirit say, sing. Sing to them. So like, okay. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Should I be in the worship team? Thank you. <laughs> um, anyway, that's just me. Um, so after that, the guard came because he was like, okay, what up? 59 minutes to go, uh, still keeping on singing the song over and over for a whole hour, sang that song. Guard opened up, said, thank you so much, Robert Cornwall. That's great. Left, did that the next week. Asked God the same thing. Okay, what should I do? Sing. Same song, sang for a whole hour. Third week, same thing. Sat in there, started singing the song. 20 minutes in, this lady stood up, really large woman, intimidating woman, and started circling Mr. Cornwall. He was like, I don't know what to do. The locks are there. I don't know what, she's she going to attack me? And she suddenly started joining him, singing the song. Over the next few weeks, more and more of the patients started joining in to sing. After a month, after a month, the patients began singing and 36 of them out of the 37 were transferred to a self-care ward. In less than one year, all but two had been declared mentally stable and were released from hospital. They were there for ages before that. Many of these people were coming to Robert's local church, attending and participating in the kingdom of God with Robert. It's a true story. It's unbelievable, right? And we can look at this story and say a lot about it. But for me, one of the purposes in hearing this story is that when we get a glimpse of who God really is, we don't need to know him fully. This is going to be a lifelong journey for us to know about who God really is and the joy that is. But when we get a glimpse of the essence of who God is, he is kind. He has kindness towards you. He is joyful. This is transformative. This is where it changes our lives. Do we need our narratives changed about God? When we start talking about these six facets of holy following Christ over the next few months, are we going to become more Christ-like? 
or are we going to become worse? Do we really believe that God is love? That he is radically forgiving, that he is self-giving of himself, that he is wildly compassionate towards us? I would challenge us to be honest about the way that we view God because it profoundly shapes us. God wants so much for that precious Zoe, that abundant life for us. We do not need to strive and earn for his love. We have it already. Who is God to you? I want to invite the band up. Now, we're going to finish up a little bit different today. Instead of doing the, the liturgy and saying it together, and we're going to learn a new song. And the band is going to invite us up to the table. Then after that, I'll, I'll pray you out. Thanks, Leisha.